Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. This must be, and in fact, is the place... It is the Nook. It is Tales to Terrify. It is show number 63, by the way. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and why are you standing out there in the hallway, dark and drear? Come in. Come into the home place, dark and cheerful, not to say welcoming. Doff your spring wraps, grab a potion, fill a bowl with munchables, and settle in for a show filled with wonders. Spring. Ah, spring. Ah. Uh, Of this winter, though, I will say that despite previous wimpiness, this winter is showing commendable tenacity. Temperatures remain in bare double digits, and the winds, yes, the winds howl. You know, you just beat your way through them. Well, Unwrap and settle, because here is warmth, and now, spring or not, is the time for fictive chills. First, and without undue adieu, we have a modestly delayed visit from Mr. Mike Allen, sans amanuensis Shailen Hurlbert this week, who will take us on our thirteenth tour of the abattoir. Mike? Greetings, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to the latest installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, 
And this time around, I've got a grab bag full of dismembered parts to share with you. At the start of the year, a lot of Locust Swarm-style buzz began to build over the new horror film Mama, which had Guillermo del Toro's name attached to it prominently, even though he only executive produced, which in film industry terms is a rather hands-off role. It's fairly obvious why Del Toro would put his name across the top of Mama. He has a passion for the old-fashioned ghost story as represented in film, and Mama falls into that pattern, though it's a lesser example of that sort of story. It's not even the standout in Del Toro's stable, but that doesn't mean it's a bad movie, either. What do I mean when I say old-fashioned ghost story? Well, the high-water mark for a movie that frightens for what it implies about the supernatural rather than what it shows might well still be the 1968 black-and-white version of The Haunting, based on Shirley Jackson's classic The Haunting of Hill House. I can't claim to have seen every ghost story committed to film that's out there in the world, but I have seen The Haunting, and that definitely holds the high-water mark for me. There's a scene in The Haunting where all of our main characters are cowering in a locked room as something outside the door tries to get in at them, first trying the doorknob, then pushing against the door so hard that the wood bows and threatens to crack. You never see what's on the other side of the door, which makes the entire sequence all the more powerful and terrifying. Del Toro's career has encompassed horror of all sorts, but it's clear his sentiments lie with the style espoused by The Haunting, rather than the genres of splatter, slasher, and so-called torture porn, even if none of his films have ever been as subtle and minimal in their scares as that 1968 masterpiece. Del Toro is going to show you the ghost. He is going to give the monster its close-up, that doesn't mean, though, that his films are not scary. I'll bet my left arm that anyone who watches his third movie as director, The Devil's Backbone, for the first time, is going to have the bejesus scared out of them more than once. Set in an orphanage during the Spanish Civil War, The Devil's Backbone, I will argue, contains one of the most frightening visual realizations of a ghost ever brought to film perhaps mitigated a bit now by being often imitated, not least by this new flick, Mama. Before I get there, let me just run down the rest of Del Toro's ghostly resume. We get The Devil's Backbone in 2001, Pan's Labyrinth in 2006, The Orphanage in 2008, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark in 2011, and now, Mama. Of the earlier films, you're more likely to have seen Pan's Labyrinth, which was a contender for the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, and which, though you might not have known it, is a kind of spiritual sequel to The Devil's Backbone. Rather than ghosts, per se, you have Del Toro's takes on fairy tale monsters, and there's a question that's left unresolved at the end as to whether any of the film's supernatural events are real. Commendably, the idea that little Ophelia is escaping into fantasy through her adventures doesn't wash, because the fantasy realm is just as frightening and evil as her cruel reality. 
For me, Devil's Backbone is a superior film simply because it holds together better as a story. I've always felt the parts of Pan's Labyrinth were greater than the whole. We also have The Orphanage, a Spanish-language film which Del Toro executive produced, and which was released in the U.S. with his name featured prominently. It, too, had a few things in common with The Devil's Backbone. In a way, it ups the ante, as instead of one creepy ghost child, you've got nearly a dozen of them. There's some astonishing and frightening scenes in that 2008 film that approach the subtlety of technique in The Haunting. Del Toro had a much more direct hand in Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, producing and co-writing the script. It's a remake of a 1973 made-for-television cult movie that apparently scared the bejesus out of Del Toro as a kid. I haven't seen the original, but I can tell you that Del Toro's special effects-laden update, while it definitely has its moments, is not up to the standard of the previous three films in terms of boring under the skin of your mind and taking up permanent residence. You have to wonder, though, if Del Toro's penchant for eerie little fairy creatures didn't start with seeing that old film on TV, as Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is jam-packed with them. If anything, you see a bit too many of them. There's no denying the horror of the climactic set-piece, though. Whatever you might think about Katie Holmes... What her character suffers will make you cringe. There's something the orphanage and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark have in common. Supernatural beings apparently just want mommies to love them, and they'll do whatever it takes to acquire one for themselves. Which finally brings us to Mama. Which kind of flips that idea around. Here's a ghost who wants children... And if you're not going to let her have yours, woe to you. Mama definitely falls toward the subtle scare end of the spectrum, though the bar for what that constitutes has shifted a bit in our time. There's no blood, but by the end of the film you've gotten a good enough look at the title Spectre, several times over, that she ceases to be all that scary, which is kind of too bad. If you took the genuinely scary sequences in this film, liberated them from the rather cliched plot they've been woven into, and just spliced them together in a montage, you'd have an epic nightmare that could deprive you of sleep for days. But taken as a whole, that's not the effect Mama has. This film began life as a short vignette, same title, viewable on YouTube by new filmmakers Andy and Barbara Muschietti. It's an ingenious little showcase of special effects and camera work, though I have to say the mama that appears in the short reminds me a lot of the ghost from The Devil's Backbone. It's easy to see why Del Toro would have been drawn to it. The feature-length version, though, makes some curious choices. It's set in Virginia, for one thing, with the haunted cabin where the specter is first revealed supposedly standing in Clifton Forge, a town about an hour or so's drive from where I live here in Roanoke, Virginia. And yet these precarious mountain vistas sure look a lot like Canadian scenery to me. Not to mention the immense Raiders of the Lost Ark-like warehouse of artifacts that's supposedly found at the Allegheny County Courthouse. 
I've been to that courthouse, and none of the clerks have ever shown me that room. <laughs> but that is a small matter. The larger matter is that in expanding this short to a feature-length film, the creators essentially came up with a boilerplate story that proceeds the way you've seen any number of haunting-slash-exorcism films proceed before, with events dictated by the tropes of the genre rather than actual cause-and-effect logic. Jessica Chastain is perfectly fine as a punk rocker forced by rather improbable circumstances to become a surrogate mom to the two abandoned children Mama has taken under her wing. But aren't you a little tired of ambitious single women in movies who become, quote, real women, unquote, when they discover their nurturing instincts? It's just about as tiresome as minority characters sacrificing their lives for the good of the white family unit, or people wandering off alone to inspect the noise when an invincible undead psychomaniac is on the loose. The child actors who play the two little girls that Mama has raised in the woods and doesn't want to give up are just terrific. To be honest, those girls make the movie work. The ending of Mama, is bizarrely sentimental. I had mixed feelings about it, but didn't think it was terrible. I'm going to pick on my lovely wife. Anita actually cried at the end. I did not. I, I did appreciate the ending's twist. You reach a point where it looks like things have turned out all right after all, and then they don't. But it's still bizarrely sentimental. All the same, I appreciate the effort that went into making many of Mama's set pieces genuinely frightening the way nightmares are frightening, rather than just a showcase for gore effects. Thinking about Del Toro's admirable passion for relative subtlety in horror leads me to a favorite writer who, in words, works much the same way. Peter Straub. Recently, I had the pleasure of reading Peter's 1993 thriller, The Throat. Loaned to me by my buddy Shallon Hurlbert. By the way, if you're wondering where he is, well, he and I were unable to coordinate a mutual viewing and review of Mama, so I've done it solo, but we're negotiating our next collaboration, so don't worry. If all goes well, you'll hear from him next time. Now then, The Throat, despite not being marketed as a horror novel, somehow managed to win the 1994 Bram Stoker Award for Best Novel. I don't begrudge Peter that award. It's a masterfully written thriller, a poetic and complex crime novel, and it certainly contains elements of horror. Ghosts play a not insignificant role, and the murders are certainly horrific. In my last couple columns, I mentioned reading novels such as Let Me In, and this book is full of spiders. I also read the latest Jim Butcher, Harry Dresden novel, though that doesn't really fit in here in terms of coverage. But when I was reading Straub's novel, I felt as if I'd stepped up to a higher plane. There's a grown-up steering this story, a master at the peak of his craft. The Throat is connected to two other Straub novels, Coco and Mystery. I've read the former, not the latter. Together, they form the Blue Rose Trilogy, though they're not a trilogy in the traditional genre sense. 
Though Straub is without question one of the giants of the horror field, he doesn't seem to have amassed the level of fandom that's out there for the likes of Stephen King and Clive Barker, and I think the reason why has to do with why I like his work so much. He doesn't particularly care about world-building or even telling straightforward stories. Rather than writing a straight sequel, he'll write a novel in which a character who claims to be the author of the previous book asserts that everything in that book was a half-truth or flat-out wrong. And then the character will proceed to share what he claims to be the real story. Straub plays with unreliable narrators, unreliable narration, meta-realities, and the very relationship of book-to-reader in a way that no other mainstream horror novelist does. In the throat, novelist Tim Underhill, a frequent protagonist of Straub's who often doubles as a sort of alter ego, reveals that he is actually the author of Coco and Mystery. Just so you know, he was a character in Coco, but not the main character. Underhill explains that the events he's about to recount in The Throat will correct a number of things he got wrong in those first two books. Do I believe him? I'm not sure. But the story that he does then recount is a doozy. Underhill gets called back to his hometown of Millhaven because the Blue Rose murders have started again. The very first victim of these murders was Underhill's own sister, April, and now the wife of his friend and fellow Vietnam veteran John Ransom has been beaten unconscious and left in a hotel room where one of the first murders took place. The wife's name is also April, and the words Blue Rose had been written on the wall above her body. What follows is a kind of claustrophobic odyssey of the novel that connects horrible things that happened in Vietnam to the darkness lurking in the urban and suburban neighborhoods of Millhaven. There's a huge cast of characters, and Straub shows a remarkable knack for creating details that keep each person distinct and memorable. Straub has a somewhat realistic grip on police and media procedures, which help me forgive a few inevitable preposterous moments. At the risk of providing spoilers, the whodunit question at the center of the book turns out to have more than one answer. One person isn't responsible for everything that happens. I'm someone who's very good at guessing how a novel is going to end. For example, I saw the ending of Neil Gaiman's American Gods coming from a mile away. But I give Straub credit for some masterful fake-outs. I felt that I had met my match here. There's a revelation at the very, very end about how some of the murders really played out that I had mixed feelings about at first. But when Straub drew that particular thread to its ultimate conclusion, I had to confess, Okay, that was perfect. Well done, sir. I wonder, though, if the typical horror fan might fidget at this book, which is full of gruesome events that almost all take place off stage. The supernatural happenings all whisper from the edges. They're not front and center. But that's a lot of the charm of how Straub works. He's not predictable the way his collaborator, King, can be. Trying to remember how I first became familiar with Peter's work, it's not clear to me at the moment whether I read The Talisman first, the first novel co-written with Stephen King, 
or whether I read Floating Dragon first. I can tell you that for me, the talisman really dragged, while Floating Dragon scared the bejesus out of me. That novel was demented. I've seen that book accused of attempting to do too much at once. Essentially, an ancient demon and an intelligent plague cloud assault a town simultaneously, causing many harrowing deaths in all sorts of creative ways. Anita and I used to joke about Uncle Milty's milkshakes, a reference to one particular character's gooey, oozing demise. Perhaps the only Straub novel that closely resembles a typical Stephen King thrill ride is Ghost Story, which I believe remains his best-selling novel. It's a rollicking descent into fear and madness, but it's still a bit askew from one of King's Monster of the Week stories, despite having a very effective monster of its own at its center, the shape-shifting Alma Mobley, who isn't really a ghost at all, but a sort of female demon akin to the antagonist of Arthur Machen's The Great God Pan, but considerably more deadly. I think that Straub is trying to do something in print, not dissimilar, at least in spirit, to what Del Toro is up to in film. His stories are thoughtful. They're classy. They have a lot of jazz references. They play games with the expectations that come with horror. And yet they can go to some pretty depraved places. I first read Straub when I was a teen, and as I said, really dug Floating Dragon. His novel Shadowland, one of the nastiest takes on fairy tales I've ever read, also left an impression. I read Coco in college and enjoyed it, but was put off a little by what felt to me like a very contrived ending. The Throat has somewhat of the same problem, though the ending is better. I really rediscovered him, though, with the books he produced starting with Mr. X in 1998. Mr. X is one of the most original Lovecraftian novels I've ever read. Straub's twist is that the main villain, a genuinely dangerous supernatural badass capable of horrific violence, delusionally believes himself to be descended from the beings of the Cthulhu mythos and his diary entries are written in Lovecraft's overly eldritch style. After another collaboration with King, Black House, Straub followed with Lost Boy, Lost Girl, which brings back the heroes and setting of The Throat, but takes them in a completely supernatural direction, and introduces one of the creepiest haunted houses ever imagined. Lost Boy, Lost Girl was followed with another slant-wise sequel, In the Night Room, that, like The Throat, purports to be a true retelling of the events of the previous book, though this novel toys with realities at so many levels that I just have to imagine we still don't have the real story yet. Or maybe we just haven't found the perfect version. And if you've read In the Night Room, you know what that last remark meant but I'm not going to give you listeners any other context. Go read it. Find out. I was there at the World Fantasy Awards ceremony in 2010 when Peter Straub was given a Lifetime Achievement Award, and I was the first person to shake his hand and congratulate him afterward, one of my few fanish accomplishments that I'm still proud of. <laughs> Talking about old-fashioned ghost stories, I will assert 
that Straub's work falls right in line with such 19th century classics of the weird as Oliver Onion's The Beckoning Fair One, or examples of early 20th century strangeness such as Jean Ray's The Shadowy Street. Straub just turned 70 and he's still going strong. If you haven't tested out his work, I hope you will, and keep your mind open to a little experimentation when you do. After all, isn't this the only purpose you were born for? To let us horror writers experiment on your brains? And with that, I think I'm going to wrap things up in a nice, tight shroud. So until next time, stay scared. And thank you for that, Mike. You know... Whether on screen or on the page or being spoken round the circle, dark and ghostly tales are among my favorite horrors. I say ghostly with some thought. There are many tales and films that tease us with the essence of ghost without ever showing us a spook or a spirit in the flesh, as twere. M.R. James, Henry James, others, I love those. Terror without a face is always best, because if it's there, it must then be described. And I absolutely agree with Mike about Guillermo del Toro's work. First class all the way. The Devil's Backbone is one of the best ghost tales on film, I think. Almost as good as The Haunting, the real one, not the techie remake from... 20-whatever with Liam Neeson at all. Now, that old black-and-white film with virtually no special effects is the cinema of the ghostly at its finest. And for modern tales of the ghostly, Peter Straub. Yes, if you're not a fan, then you've not read him. He is a damn good writer. Forget the horror part. His work is just great writing. So, thanks, Mike, for that tour of the abattoir. Speaking, by the way, of abattoirs, old friend of the nook Martin Munt's fiction collection, The Crawling Abattoir, along with its brother collection, The Dark Underbelly of Hymns, is now available on Kindle for a scandalously low price, far less, I might say, than our own Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. Tales to Terrify, of course, is still and I think is permanently available only on inked paper. But for Marty's books, stop by Amazon, type in Martin Munt, that's M-U-N-D-T, and scan the virtual shelves for those two collections, The Crawling Abattoir and The Dark Underbelly of Hymns. Peter Straub likes them, by the way. And, whilst tapping away, stop by the Tales to Terrify site and... Do what? Yes. Buy the book. And, of course, you can make a contribution, too. That would be nice. I am told by our producer and father figure, Tony C. Smith, that thousands of listeners now stop by the Nook every month. It's very nice. And just so you know, there's always, as E.F. Benton has said, room for one more. So, ask your friends to join you. You could make an evening of it. 
gather, pour drinks, parcel out the goodies, grab a cat or two, and listen. Hmm? <laughs> to what? To fiction, of course. And our fiction tonight is from Gary Fry. It is an atmospheric, spooky little chiller. And don't we love those? And it's called The Indelible Strain of Company. While Gary's first and brightest love is literature, he has a first-class degree and a Ph.D. in psychology. He lives in Whitby, England, literally around the corner from where Bram Stoker was staying whilst thinking of vampires and writing about a certain count named Dracula. While Gary dabbled with prose in his teens, he says he's been writing seriously for around ten years, and his first sale was a pretty major coup when he got a short story, both and, in Ramsey Campbell's international anthology, Gathering the Bones. Since then, Gary has published short story collections, novellas, and novels. His first collection included an introduction by the aforementioned Ramsey Campbell, in which Gary was described as a master. Gary says his interest in psychology and philosophy inform his fiction. He likes to think that every facet of his thought can be strung together by reading his assorted pieces, each adding to the whole, a, a vision, if you like. So here, have a peek through Gary Fry's thoughts with the indelible strain of company. Geoffrey Mansfield had arranged to travel across West Yorkshire to the small town of Hebden Bridge on a Friday at noon. This would be his attempt to enjoy a short break without the encumbrance of the weekend rush and crush. He set out for the railway station in uncharacteristically high spirits. It was a cool autumn morning in Bradford and drizzle hung in the rough air of the city. He would soon be away from all this, he reassured himself. The pollution, the downtrodden people, the modern world in general... Once he'd boarded his carriage, he hoisted his single companion, a small portmanteau, into the luggage compartment overhead and then settled back for the journey. On the front page of the morning newspaper, there was a short article about a local murder, but it didn't hold his attention for long. Now, finally, Geoffrey had started out on his well-deserved holiday. Unusually for the day and the time of year, the train grew packed. A stop at Halifax and then Sirby Bridge and then Mytholmroyd had furnished the carriage with as motley a crew of malcontents as any Geoffrey had encountered at the university. Here was Spike, a young ruffian with enough silver in his face to slaughter innumerable infantry. There was Heroin Head, whose skin was so pale one might mistake what scrawniness was left of her for a mislaid cadaver. Thank goodness none of them wanted to sit beside him. Though the seat to the left of Geoffrey was available, folk seemed to prefer crowding around the tables or standing in the aisle. Perhaps his gaze had expressed enough of his contempt to perturb the over-familiar. Nevertheless, it was a relief to disembark at his destination, and more so to hear the train clatter along the rails as it headed for the tacky west coast. Geoffrey fancied that somebody else, presence behind him, had alighted on the platform though when he turned to look, there was no one. 
Rain had begun to fall, fat, heavy drops bespattering the tarmac lane leading away from the station. Once Geoffrey had reached the perimeter of the town centre, he turned right into an inclining road. Before anything else, he would seek out his accommodation. There would be plenty of time to re-explore the delights of Hebden Bridge. The visiting local brews, the caves of treasures that were bookstores, the barge-strewn canal on Saturday and Sunday. Without further hesitation, Geoffrey assaulted the slope and only ceased panting as he blundered through the entrance to the gamekeeper's gun. The interior of the pub was pretty much as he remembered. To the right, a small dining area, from the ceiling of which a collection of pot jugs hung on bronze hooks. To the left, a broader beer lounge with a television currently bleating out the frenetic voice of a sports commentator. A small group of men was crowded around the screen, hands clutching predictable pints, eyes chasing a ball from left to right, right to left, with pitiable obedience. Geoffrey growled with distaste. Was there no escaping the bloom and buzz of the insensitive? Still, at least there were no couples to endure, sickly sad partners in the false first flowering of romance. The only other patron this afternoon was scarcely visible in the shadows of a brick ingle nook. What appeared to be a woman, an emaciated frame in black with a pair of sallow hands laid flat upon a tabletop. She had no drink, Geoffrey noticed, which was more strange than stupid. As Geoffrey reached the bar, a figure detached itself from against the hatch and drifted right behind hand pumps to greet him. It bore a familiar face, the hooded eyes, the splintered teeth, the hairless, blocky crown of the landlord. Geoffrey feigned a smile, the thinness of which scarcely unsettled the composure of his sullen visage. Good day to you, sir. We've had you here recently, have we not? The name's Mansfield. I, um, spent a few days with you last year. Hmm, but there's something missing. Let me think now. Let me put my finger on it. I'm tired. I've been travelling. Could you please let me have my key and guidance to my room so that I might freshen up? Of course, of course. There was a pause. Then. But you'll permit me to ponder while I work. As the landlord scrabbled in a drawer overhung with myriad optics, Geoffrey held his breath. The old bugger. Yes, he must be flirting with retirement. That was ten years unwarranted seniority. Was thinking hard, his ribbed brow pinched towards the bridge of a solid nose. When he joined his guest on the other side of the counter, the landlord tapped a key hitched to a chunky plastic fob against the dimpled prow of his chin. What could it be? Ah, follow me. This way, please, upstairs. Geoffrey was led towards a door, fitted atop three carpeted steps. Once the door had croaked open and the landlord's feet beat thrice upon the stairs, there was a sudden, violent exclamation. Then the man had turned on Geoffrey, leering misshapenly. Accusingly? Ah, got it. It's your other half, the wife. She's not with you. That's what's missing. Oh, but you must forgive me if I'm speaking out of turn. Before Geoffrey could bark something unbecoming in response, something with violent import, there was a cheer from across the lounge, surely not in favour of the landlord's recollection. Geoffrey whirled on his heel, his case thumping his right shin, and saw men in red embracing. So the drinker's team had scored... Yet this only contributed to Geoffrey's rage. To calm himself, he averted his gaze to the ingle nook beyond the television. The woman had gone now, perhaps to the toilets beyond the dining area. Geoffrey had neither heard nor seen her movement, though that was hardly surprising, surrounded as he was by the scourge of the huge, fine world. 
Only marginally less incensed, Geoffrey turned to see the open doorway, within which now only a head hung upside down, mouth beckoning. Come along, Mr Mansfield, it's waiting for you, and it's warm, I've seen to that personally. The landlord was referring to the room, of course, and to the central heating that Geoffrey could recall from his previous visit. Last year, Mary had complained, whenever had she been doing anything but, about the chill, and he'd had to bleed the radiator with the key she'd found in the bedside drawer. A filthy job, beneath him. There would be none of this during the present stay. Let the weasel who'd surged on ahead be summoned for menial tasks. Geoffrey wrestled his case through the narrow frame before plodding grimly upstairs. Well, here she is. Here who is? Geoffrey wondered for one uncomfortable moment and then slapped away his foolishness. The landlord had pushed the key into the lock in advance of kicking open the door. Room three, Geoffrey observed. That was good. It wasn't the double he'd shared with Mary. Not that he believed in anything beyond the rational, reasonable world. It was the wife who took the book in. I had no idea it was you. I believe she informed you that, other than the doubles, only here was available, and that you'd said, go ahead, book it anyway. Look, you could let your case sleep in t'other bed. Ha! What's happened to Mrs Mansfield, sir? Is the news as grave as I fear? I'm afraid my wife passed away very recently. Oh, as bad as I expected, and my condolences, of course. They're irreplaceable, aren't they? Oh, I know that mine is like a hunch most of the time. On my back is what I mean. Oh, but I couldn't do without her, you know. I couldn't really. Is it hard, sir? Hard for you? I think about it a great deal. Now, if you'll excuse me? For sure, sir. No problem, as our Italian cousins say. Perhaps you might care to join us. Oh, that's myself and a few regulars for a drink later in the bar, yes? I shall be drinking there this evening, but I'd value my privacy. Thank you. You'll have that and our respect to go with it, so help you. Here's the key. Later, my friend. Sometime later. Once the landlord had deposited the key on a dark wood sideboard, he departed, casting back the thumps of his descending footfalls. Irritating oink. Patronising scumbag. Skinny bastard. Geoffrey hefted his case onto the second of the two single beds, the one nearer the window, and in a foul frame of mind he proceeded to unzip the leather lid and unleash his luggage. He extracted a draft of his new paper. This was one for the ladies, and no mistake, a postmodern treatise condemning the contemporary prevalence of feminist discourse in the UK. Women wear the trousers, no doubt about that, and Shakespeare had been right. Their weapons are water bombs. Geoffrey had yet to encounter one couple to which the foregoing conclusion was not applicable. Well, just wait until he redressed the balance. Publications such as these, highly controversial, counterintuitively bold, often made late-night discussion shows on the BBC, a touch of British eccentricity to remind viewers how normal they were. But memes spread. However it was done, they spread. Geoffrey clenched his podgy fists... He would wash and change and then treat himself to a drink, or several, alone in the bar. Once the tap had ceased pumping, only adequately warmed water, Geoffrey felt brighter. Raking a comb through his wispy hair, he forced himself against a mirror to the right of the shower cubicle. The years had been kind to him. He wasn't tall, and yet he had that quiet air of brooding authority to which his peers had always deferred. His perceived attractiveness simply wasn't an issue. He had higher things in his mind. Nevertheless, there were times during which the effect he had on the opposing sex could not be ignored. 
It was perhaps something to do with his status at the university, or possibly his linguistic sophistication. The left, hemispherically dominant, seemed to go in for that kind of thing. Just then, Geoffrey's ruminations were curtailed by the sound of paper rustling back in the bedroom. The room was empty, save for the draught of cool air slipping in through the window that was marginally ajar. Was it this that had stirred his papers on the duvet of the second bed? Geoffrey stumped forward to see that the draft of his article had been blasted open on its staple. The exposed page was that dealing with female misuse of copulation, how it was offered and withheld, a manipulative form of private power that went unchallenged in an age in which men are understood as sexual offenders by definition. Geoffrey moved rapidly to the window and thumped down the sash. An immense tree in the car park craned forward to add to the gloom. It was raining hard and only one person had elected to remain in the deluge. A thin figure turned Geoffrey's way, standing on the corner of the lane. It was almost certainly a woman. The hair was long. It must be a smear of moisture on the glass that was making her face look like that. No more of this. He needed a drink. Geoffrey gathered the key and then swept out of his room, halting only once he'd reached the beer lounge. The bar girl was young, blonde, photogenic, a piece of meat. Geoffrey ordered a pint of unknown ale and a glass of the house red. Once change had been given for a fiver, he retreated to the Inglenook to sit and reflect. The wine had been offered in a lady's glass. Wasn't it typical of the world to make this assumption? Geoffrey liked a tall drink to remind him of his working-class origins and a shorter one to indicate how refined he'd rendered himself since. The symbolism was crass, though unquestionably accurate. Why did everything these days have to be reduced to sex? The pub was quieter now. Only a retainer of some dotage stood at the bar with a half-empty glass he'd perhaps been nursing all afternoon. The sports fans had evidently departed, doubtless to commit alcohol-facilitated acts of domestic violence on their spouses. When Geoffrey was midway through his third round, a pair of young men stepped in, ostensibly to delight their unwitting audience with body innuendo and improbable tales of sexual congress. This was about as much as Geoffrey could take, and it was only now that he'd realised how hungry he'd grown. He made a move for the dining area to peruse the menu. The grill-browned cod in champignon sauce was delightful, a real testament to the craft of the chef. Geoffrey would certainly have to inquire after the chap's name. No sooner had he made this mental note, however, than the thought was gone, washed out on a sea of poison. Over dinner, Geoffrey had knocked back a full bottle of Chardonnay, an achievement not unique during the last year. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This was the life, he thought. The alcohol doing its thing. No bloody bit char to watch over my every move. Critic eyes it. Geoffrey looked up from his plate to see, at the window in the corner of the room, something dead and round and flopping. A face, was it, smudged and soundless against a dark, drizzly backdrop. It certainly looked wet, like, well, like fish. Why didn't the figure come inside out of the rain? Geoffrey pondered this question as he stood urgently and swayed to the gents. Then suddenly, with relief, amid a cloudburst of sluggish insight and an unburdening of his bladder, he figured it out. It had been a face, though not as he'd understood it. Somehow, the memories of his meal, the exquisite cod, had become entwined with his perception of the shape at the bleary pane. Perhaps the face had belonged to a prospective diner, casing the joint before committing herself and an idiot of a husband in tow. Indeed, Geoffrey's conviction in this explanation was strengthened when, re-zipping his flies, he sniffed the air. That was fish, undoubtedly the fetid aroma of some common sea vertebrate. Was it coming from behind? Were the kitchens located beyond the wall at the back of the several individual cubicles? All Geoffrey could see now that he'd turned was the closed door of the first cubicle, its latch underscored by engaged. Whoever was sitting within remained extraordinarily silent. For a reason he was unable to discern, Geoffrey stooped to his knees and lowered his head to the cold linoleum. He looked under the door. There was somebody in the cubicle, though what kind of man wore boots of this predilection? The high heels and pointed toes were surely redolent only of a woman's style, though perhaps the pair was as much as the owner had been able to acquire. Quite clearly, he had no recourse to a brush and polish. The leather was pitted and torn in several places, and what looked like salt erosion had ruptured the tongues in their buckles. Indeed, on the floor around each sole, there was a considerable pool of water. But could rain, even in this ecologically dubious age, have such an immediate degenerative effect? Geoffrey clambered again to his dizzy heights. He wasn't thinking too productively. It must be the booze. Somehow he managed to hitch the sleeve of his grey polo-neck sweater to confront the old enemy. It was still only early, a little beyond 9.30. Though, after a hard term on campus and all of the day's travelling, would it not be wise to seek an early night? After all... He had the whole of the weekend to look forward to. A sound sleep would set him up nicely for that. No sooner had the resolution entered his whirling mind than Geoffrey, amid a blur of pub life and a snatch of meaningless babble, was on the flight of stairs that brought him staggering to the door of his room. He was delving for the key in a pocket of his tweed pants when he heard the soft sound of sloshing from beyond a door across the hall. That was room five, the double in which the previous year he and... Well, despite the company, the accommodation had been quite acceptable. Had a fellow guest just taken a bath before advancing into the bedroom without troubling any of the courtesy tills? Certainly the footsteps, if that was what Geoffrey was hearing, there wasn't much audible substance to them, were emitting more squelch than tread. Then a noise like aged simpering was interrupted by the thud of blood in his ears and Geoffrey was again pitched into self-regard. He was in rather a state he could be honest with himself. He plucked out the key, wrestled with the lock, fell headfirst into his room and then blacked out. Somehow, somewhere, he slept. Amid a dream of water in which there was the inexorable threat of drowning, Geoffrey stood and walked and then relaxed a muscle that only added to the splash and gurgle in his ears. He snapped open his eyelids. 
all the better to see a dark figure, its features inscrutable, looming silently before him. That had to be himself, he figured, his reflection in the bathroom mirror, he amended urgently. But then he heard moaning, toothless and febrile. Was that an old lady? Perhaps he was hearing the tenant of room five. Geoffrey remembered now that there had been no ensuite facilities, that one must cross the landing and use the communal bathroom. The old dear must be out in the hall, struggling with her door. Thank goodness she couldn't get in here. Geoffrey was just beginning to worry about the validity of his reassurance. Had he managed to lock himself in, following entry? When somewhere in the dark he felt the cool comfort of his sheets, slumped into the mattress, and again fell soundly asleep. When he awoke, it was to a pain in his skull that initially he ascribed to daylight. No, none of that. Self-deception was for unchanging fools. This was a sensation he'd experienced more frequently as he grew older, a hangover. He couldn't drink as he had in his early years before his education in the factory with so many other lunatics. Geoffrey pushed back the sheets, swung out his legs and then jerked very suddenly. It wasn't that he was still dressed in the clothes in which he'd arrived yesterday, though indeed this possessed its own incongruity. Rather, it was the sight of the second bed, the one between that in which he was now sitting up, and the uncurtained window. It looked slept in. The sheets were a tangle, the pillow indented with disconcerting circularity. What on earth had... Geoffrey chuckled then, the ache in his head diminishing slightly. Of course... With his restless night, he'd been up and down to the toilet, and on his return, he'd climbed into this bed. Logic decreed, therefore, that he'd spent the early part of the night in the second bed, and this explained its current disorder. Bloody alcohol! It played merry hell with the psyche. Nevertheless, Geoffrey knew that, come opening time, he would be back with a pint and a short, the peerless company thereof. He stood quickly and strutted into the bathroom, flannel, deodorant and comb all ghostly deployed. He was ready to leave. He went to the door. Yes, he had triggered the Yale overnight and tugged at the handle. As he stepped out, he was unable to resist a glance back into the room, more particularly a quick glare at the bed near the window. There was something about it he was unwilling to admit. And as he closed the door behind him and crossed the landing to the head of the staircase, he refused to. The large, dark patch on the mattress slipcover, it was approximately the size of a slight human shape in the fetal position was surely only a shadow. At any rate, as Geoffrey had viewed it at a fleetingly specific angle, it hadn't glistened with moisture. Breakfast was just the ticket, a heady combination of grease and cholesterol that had the effect of lining his stomach without precipitating his habitual biliousness. Geoffrey ate alone, notwithstanding the attentions of the landlord, an intermittent monologue that stimulated only cathartic mental images of violence. As he swilled down the last of the coffee, Geoffrey wondered at what time the venerable insomniac from room five would descend for whatever nibbles her dentures might cope with. Indeed, there must be a husband about somewhere. What use was a double when there was only one of you? Geoffrey guessed he would meet the couple later once he'd returned from his walk and his shopping and his drink. In fact, he didn't give a bugger either way, though a certain nagging something demanded resolution, and he'd always trusted intuition. He left the table and, with a swift glance of surveillance, stole out of the building at a canter. Here was fun, the attempt to work out which of the windows upstairs gave on to his room. Geoffrey was standing on the curb at the opposite side of the road, glancing back at the gamekeeper's gun. It was tricky from the outside, surely much easier within. The figure at the window on the left, for instance, must be in no doubt. Was this the fellow guest Geoffrey had heard whimpering in the night? The body was certainly tiny enough to be that of an aged female, 
though more than this he was unable to distinguish. The light wasn't good, and the face appeared only as an implausible arrangement of flesh. Was she looking out at him, just as he was looking in? Geoffrey couldn't tell, and immediately he was no longer keen to inquire. He turned and marched for the village, his eyes fixed ambitiously forward. In his mind, he'd mapped out the schematics of the building. The room on the left couldn't be the double that was room five. Its window was too close to the tree in the car park. The room in which the figure had been standing, queer and unmoving, must be number three, Geoffrey's own room. Hebden Bridge was crawling with deception. Perhaps that reading was a tad cynical, but of the numerous couples he saw strolling together, only one was prepared to go public with anything resembling the truth. Man and wife bickering as a cafe was selected. Geoffrey passed among such folk, brutally yoked together through nuptial acquiescence, exchanging comments like the incontinent passing water. And he laughed, laughed, laughed under his breath. He reached a remainder bookstore, and he entered all of a sudden, failing to keep his mind innocuously occupied. The woman at the window of his room must have been the cleaner. Really, she must cease loitering if she wished to retain her position at the gamekeeper's gun. Geoffrey decided he would have a stiff word with the landlord the moment he returned. This week's Spetial discount promotion, good God, spotlighted books published with the ambitious aim of improving one's sex life. Presumably, this was an attempt to transform the distasteful, sweaty act into something vaguely tolerable though the facial expressions of open-mouthed ecstasy on the glossy covers seemed to threaten something more disorienting. Geoffrey moved on rapidly, dismissing shelves sagging with lurid bodice rippers and laughably titled Romantic Tripe, before ascending three steps to an academic section. Here in the column marked Psychology was another shock. God at work and good in bed and how to do it in your head. James Green, PhD. Another fucking charlatan who'd sold himself out. What was the matter with the world? What was the matter with the times? Geoffrey departed noisily, a bemused sales assistant in his wake. He made his impatient way up the high street, browsing the second-hand bookshops for something that was worth reading at least once. For only a fiver, he picked up an early British edition of Michel Foucault's The History of Sexuality, Volume 1, and was so excited by the discovery that he buried it in his jacket as he retreated from the smiling, simple scrutiny of the unknowing vendor. At any rate, there was nobody within proximity out in the pavement, though from that moment forward, it was getting on for 11 o'clock, Geoffrey couldn't help feeling as though he were being followed, watched. He would walk back along the canal, try to clear his head, the better to maximise the enjoyment of his next medicinal influx. Geoffrey turned left at a co-op and sidled chubbily through a stone stile to gain access to the towpath. The canal and its flanks were deserted. Only a queue of garishly painted barges bobbed in the breeze. As he strolled, a family of ducks strayed in his general direction, loitered for a moment, then swivelled and departed firm in duck knowledge that there was no food here. It was a bone-dry day, twigs crackling underfoot, and an off-white sky bore nary a cloud. Was there ever a more precious moment? Nevertheless, Geoffrey was unable to shake the uncomfortable conviction that he wasn't alone. Maybe he was detecting the movement of a denizen of one of the barges along whose sides he'd now drawn abreast. But when he coughed clumsily, an attempt to elicit some kind of courteous response from within, there was nothing other than the rippling of turgid water and a random bubbling from somewhere very deep. The attendant odour, sulphurous as urine, might be silt in the waterbed. 
Once Geoffrey had reached a stretch of the canal that was clear, he stepped up to the edge, leaning to look down. The muddied face of the corpse lurched up to greet him. Dear God, he looked terrible. Geoffrey had hoped that the walk might bring some colour to his cheeks, something better than the thread veins that had popped out over the last few months. But in the dirty, watery reflection at his feet there was only the cold, crisp mask of a ghost. Sweet J.C., he needed a beer. Here the dog, and quick. He clambered again to the upright that evolution had been striving for and then accelerated his hitherto laggardly pace to a trot. It must have been his sudden commotion that had startled the woman from her barge. At any rate, Geoffrey caught only a peripheral glance of her on the path at a distance behind as he set off in his hurry. How fine it would be to live such a life of leisure. Clearly, the motionless onlooker had only recently awakened. Her flat black hair was wringing wet and hung untidily across an unmade-up face. Geoffrey kept on moving, all the quicker now. The slopping he was hearing must be the play of water against the lock he'd passed. Certainly it was ludicrous to suggest that he was being pursued, however much the repetitive sound gave him his impression. Who on earth would venture out with feet that wet? How on earth could feet remain as wet as that? Geoffrey didn't stop racing until he'd reached the pub, the favourite of his many favourites in the town. As he stumbled inside, clutching his chest, he muscled up to the bar and barked a command. A double whisky, at the double, to the aged petite bar thing. By the time his drink was clicked down in front of him, Geoffrey had plucked up a menu and decided to go for the soup and roll. He said as much with rather more politeness than he had deemed necessary, and as the old woman tore off an order tag, Geoffrey knocked back the scotch, ordered another round, received and paid for it, and then went back to seek a table somewhere away from the plebs. The beer was good, and the wine, though a tad towards the warm, pleasantly sharp and fruity. To while away the time before service, Geoffrey conducted a character assassination on his fellow diners. Here were couples whose interminable marriages could be read on the face, old folk with only the barest traces of consciousness, keeping each other alive with strategically muttered comments about today's weather and today's roast beef, and the youth of today, and, in comparison to the past, just how poor everything was today. Well, of course, this latter fact was true, since in the days of yore there had been youth, freedom, singlehood. Why hadn't any of them got out before it was too late, escaped the tyranny of partnership, struck out in the world in which opportunity beckoned, choice was simple and pleasures copious? Who in their right mind would continually opt for a life of restriction and tediousness, even if some of the more unpalatable aspects of monogamous relationships were less incumbent towards the end? Geoffrey's train of thought, already a trifle unsteady with the sudden reconfiguration of chemicals beneath his skull, was derailed completely by the arrival of the waitress, the silly slapper. Huh? Geoffrey answered, sending the last of his pint in the way of the red. What's the matter? I'm sorry, number 46? Soup in a roll, that's me. You can see that from the tab on the table, so why embroider the issue? I'm sorry, of course, I read your order, but when I saw you earlier I thought... Your table, I mean... Oh, it doesn't matter. Here you are, sir. The spotty-faced girl, she couldn't be a month beyond her sixteenth, and by the look of her hips was probably in the first stages of an anorexic illness, set a knife and spoon cocooned in a napkin on the table before Geoffrey's severely folded arms. Your meal shouldn't be long, sir. Make it hot and fresh and I shan't complain too loudly. I'll have another couple of these while you're at it. Sniff the dregs and guess or ask the deer at the till. Whatever your strategy, make them quick. Uh, same again, is, is that what you mean, sir? There's hope for you, I'll confess that much. And he offered her one of his smiles, the filthy whore. 
It was only now that Geoffrey noticed what the girl was carrying in her least preferred hand, another napkin-wrapped knife-spoon combination. What the... But before there was time to demand an explanation, the waitress had departed, trailing a vicious scent of perfume. Gross impertinence, Geoffrey decided. The girl had simply assumed he would be one of a couple. Oh, the youth of today, not as astute as it had been in his own era. Geoffrey shut out the mental image of a bed sullied by a stain of malodorous dampness and waited patiently for his meal and his next dose of medication. The soup was delicious, homemade with fresh vegetables, and Geoffrey did his best to savour the taste without the impulsive intervention of alcohol. Once he'd scooped out the dregs and swallowed a final butter-moistened crust of bread roll, however, he was free for the more rudimentary task. A second round was quickly consumed, then a third, and as the bar lounge began to fill up, nobody wanted to sit with him. It wasn't as though there was no space. Why, only across the way, two couples were sharing a table just like Geoffrey's. What was wrong with this one, eh? The fucking proles. During his fourth round, Geoffrey glanced across at the empty chair opposite his and then spluttered a mouthful of liquid. There was someone there, a woman in black, though when he glared harder, the contents of his brain sluicing hither and thither, he could only conclude that there must have been a smudge of something dark on his spectacles. Geoffrey snapped off his wire rim frames and polished the lens with the gathered material of his sweater. He refitted the pair before looking again. The seat was empty. Geoffrey ordered another round. He ought to move on, he thought, as he reached the bottom of the glasses. He stood with some uncertainty and finished his drinks in that position before rounding the table, his blustering, attracting gazes. Saw them all. Bleeding bastards. Indeed, somebody must have spilled her or his drink earlier while passing the table. On the leather seat of the chair that Geoffrey had scrutinised less than an hour ago, there was a considerable puddle of liquid. Late afternoon, the world darkening and the town swaying. Geoffrey marched, sure-footed, at any rate it felt this way, along a narrow lane before reaching a bridge whose hump he scarcely registered. He decided, or so it seemed, to take a longer route back to his accommodation, away from the hurly-burly of fleeting day-trippers and semi-clad louts and slags making early Saturday evening starts. It was quieter now in the back streets. A cobbled walkway, so steep it aspired to verticality, was earmarked with a local council sign. Heptonstall, one mile. As the crow flew, perhaps, Geoffrey thought, struggling to recall the old days when he'd regularly ascended the slope with ease. It was as much as he could manage today to glance up at the intimidating incline. Hey up, somebody was already attempting the trek, a fragile figure encased in a halo of shadow who'd stopped for a breather. No, she was now turning to her left, and then she vanished through an opening of stone halfway up the slope. With his mind the way it was at present, Geoffrey couldn't be certain, but an errant strand of memory indicated that at this point in the lane there was a tiny graveyard. As he moved on, Geoffrey shuddered, wishing he'd wrapped up warmer while the night drew in. More than his recollection, however, another thought had disturbed him. Why had he automatically assumed that the figure on the slope had been that of a woman? Hiccup, hiccup, and here he was, back within the auspices of that well-armed gamekeeper, out of the dark and under the tree, Geoffrey entered the building, nudging against walls, and found his way, none too cleanly, to the bar. Between two corpses slouched over ale, he took up a stool and planted eager elbows on either side of the beer trough. Hi, landlord, he said to the landlord, and then, More of the same, if you'd kindly. I like a man with a thirst, Mr Mansfield, and you're, I have to say, oh yes, I do, up there with the finest, sir. Society decrees, or rather the tacit historically specific rules of sociality, do 
that I return the compliment, though I'm afraid I'm rather at a loss. Perhaps you might tell me something admirable about yourself. Take a moment to think if that's something you find necessary. I'll engage myself all the while with these little fellows. Geoffrey tucked into the pint the landlord had set brimming on the plastic tray. It was delightful, like dark treacle that had run so thin it was a wonder it could be captured in barrels. The wine was less cheering, its aromatic bouquet belying a root sourness that made Geoffrey shiver again, only this time indoors. Cold night, it looks like. Can a night look cold, Mr Landlord? Is that actually possible? Well, the trees can move, which suggests wind. That one out there, in the car park, you know, grumbles like an old one when the weather gets up. Tree grumbles old. No, these phrases put Geoffrey in mind of episodes today he'd rather forget. To change the subject, he backwound the dialogue in his teeming mind until he fell upon a harmless inquiry. About yourself, you were about to tell me, why is there indeed, what, what is there indeed worth the telling? I'm a good husband, I think. At any rate, Mrs Landlord has few complaints. Bad start, Geoffrey couldn't help thinking. Unwelcome images surged down on his defenceless mind. But then he took another drink and, fortified by the consequent reinforcing army of neurons, decided to pursue the tide of the conversation. But how can you be so sure? She laughs a lot in my company. Doesn't that tell you something? Maybe she's laughing at you. They do, you know. I've never really considered that. You should then do something about it. He'd gone too far. Geoffrey could tell this. What little he could deduce with any confidence at all by the look on the landlord's face. Just then, however, a customer approached the bar to be served and was promptly obliged. Deus ex machina, Geoffrey thought. All he had to do now was beat a hasty retreat to a private part of the beer lounge. He cast a surreptitious gaze into the mirror that backgrounded innumerable inverted monster spirit bottles. He was still flanked by the two grimacing mannequin deadheads. Beyond these stationary carcasses, the room was crowded with gabbling dummies. False fronts speaking sociably, holding darkness tenuously within. Perhaps the Inglenook was free. Geoffrey glanced in that direction, at its reflected location at any rate, and saw in the rebound of the glass a pair of familiar female eyes looking his way. Pain like a thump of lead assaulted his chest. Immediately, Geoffrey span on the stool, glaring out across the crowded snug. People flitted to and fro, victims in the making, if Geoffrey had ever seen any. Why couldn't they move out of the fucking way? All he could see of the inglenook was the stone arch heralding its opening. To view the contents, he would have to get up and move through the hideous coupling, a prospect that made his skin squirm clamily, though he couldn't decide why. Then he stood and walked and cowered between small men and big women. Somehow, he reached the inglenook. The wraparound seating and the single table were very much available. There was nobody there. Hey up, old man, you've forgotten your runnies. Before Geoffrey could make any further assessment of the phenomenon, a pair of heavy hands had steered him into the sedentary position and dumped a pint and wine glass roughly within range of consumption. Was the seat wet, or had he soiled himself again? No, no, he hadn't done that in the first place. There had just been a shadow on the bed. When Geoffrey looked up, the landlord was swimming in a sea of drowned figures, dribbling nonsense. We were talking about women, old chap. I had a feeling that you had something to say. Only piss... Geoffrey stumbled over his words and then instinctively lubricated his tongue with a slurp of the fine stuff. 
only this, that it's hard to know who you are without other people. Okay, without a woman to remind you, but they always want more, don't they? And more is what is in your fine bond, sir? Just more, more physical attention and not so much sympathetic ear as one that is altruistic. Well, I don't understand that, Mr Mansfield, but what I will say is this. Perhaps they sometimes want to know who they are too, eh? Have you considered that one? Geoffrey pondered for a moment. At any rate, he processed what at present were passing for thoughts in his throbbing brain. Perhaps they sometimes want to know who they are too. It was some idea, a veritable archetype of lay wisdom that might have sent some of his anthropological colleagues into paroxysms of glee. Geoffrey laughed hideously. What they are is dirt's my man. He spoke like an oracle, may every word be heeded. Hand what you do with dirt, wash it away. Is that what you were attempting to do when you killed your wife? asked a voice. But Geoffrey understood immediately that the words had been announced only in his head. The landlord had turned for the bar. In the important business of drinking, another customer wanted more. Mary went the way of fish, Geoffrey explained, though no sound emerged from his lips. How do you stop a woman from drowning, eh? Take your foot off her head. Ho, ho. Though in this case, the strategy was somewhat cruder. Summer break, late, late, late on the canal that threads through a sleeping campus. Double dose of tranquilizer, Midnight stroll, little shove. Then a standard garden rake to hold her down until the beads of oxygen ceased winking at the brim. Magic. Of course, everybody had known how unhappy Mary had been. The drinking, the antidepressants, and suicide wasn't that uncommon among the tagalones of academia. I dare say that it was my reputation that allayed suspicion. Well, that and my sterling enactment of grief. No relatives to speak of, indeed, save for the interminable platitudes of commiseration I had to endure from my colleagues. The whole of the business was forgotten, come new term. If only you could put him in a box at times, sir. I'll give you that much. Geoffrey glanced up, snapped out of his reverie. The landlord had returned, beaming horridly. That's exactly where mine is, Mr. Married, a married man. The funeral had a certain dignity at any rate. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Me and my mouth. I was forgetting. Cool your jets, mon ami. Forget it. No, sir, Mr. Mansfield, no. I've spoken out of turn this time and no mistake. What would Mrs. Landlord say? Please have another round on me. On the house is what I mean to say. Would be delighted to join you, Mr. Landlord, if I wasn't already as pissed as several species of fish. Perhaps then I'll retire for a nap. Standing precariously, Geoffrey managed to clear a space at his wrist to examine both his watches. No, just the one now. Eight o'clock. Watery grave. Had Geoffrey fallen asleep at the table? If so, what part, if any, of his confessional monologue had he muttered out loud? He was certainly drawing gazes of spite, though that could well have been due to the fact that the landlord was finding it necessary to shepherd him across the beer lounge. The seat of Geoffrey's pants was undeniably damp, though there was no fishy smell, a fact that gave Geoffrey confidence. As he flung open the elevated door, ready to go solo, he turned on the landlord and scowled majestically. You know, you should have a word with that clean of yours. She's no good, really, really not a good one at all. 
No cleaner here, sir. Do it all myself, the bar first thing, the rooms around lunchtime. Then who had been in his room after breakfast? In that case, you must be rather stricter with your guests. The older among them I'm referring to, the old ones who have less bite than bark, if that makes any sense. Or am I... That the tree? The landlord undercut Geoffrey's increasingly perplexed meanderings. No guests older than you, sir, this weekend. None other than you, in fact. Nope, you've got the run of the place up there, so you have. So who had sullied the seating in the ingle nook? But I? The thought had gone, rushed downstream on a vigorous tide. Geoffrey's head swam, submerged by confusion. Then he shook it before readdressing his liquid attention to the stairs behind him. He left the landlord down in the depths and all the other frisky sprats to their spawning deviance and then thrust himself upstream. He reached the door of his room in a silent drifting motion and then he was fishing again for his key. The little bastard didn't fit the slot. He pushed it in and out, in and out, in and out, with minimum joy, maximum disgust. Maybe the treacherous thoughts invading his mind were making his hands less competent than after other day-long binges. He should squash the agitation with something sweet and harmless, the nursery rhymes his smother mother had sung to him in his terrifying infancy. Mary had a little lamb, Geoffrey began, wrestling the key and then rapidly trolled the surface of his restless mind for something else. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. No, Geoffrey commanded before, success at last, entering the key, screwing it into the chamber and permitting himself to penetrate the room. Inside was bottom of the sea dark. Geoffrey hobbled across the threshold, closing the door firmly behind. The ale clicked and then the light switch did, and suddenly there was illumination. His eyes smarted, though not so badly, as he was unable to discern immediately what the landlord had done. Geoffrey paced forwards, rage supplanted only by the chemically induced tiredness, and sensed the implications of the rearranged furniture tear through his scalp. The twin beds had been pushed together to form one makeshift double. He would speak to the landlord, nay, bash his fucking brains in. However, as Geoffrey wheeled for the door, he faltered and stumbled and then finished in a heap on the shag pile carpet. When he looked up, everything was moving. The sheets in the bed particularly were rising and falling, rising and falling, rising and falling in a quick, solid, rhythmic movement. Horrified, Geoffrey clamped shut his eyes, praying that the illusion wouldn't last. Unseeing, he rolled over so that he was now sitting up on his backside, and it was then that he heard the wet squelch of his trousers. He should get them off. There was no telling what a protracted dampness in the nether regions could do to a man of his years. Uncomfortable with the way his thoughts were flowing, he opened his eyes to see what the universe had stabilised. Geoffrey kicked off his shoes before struggling out of the pants. Now a grinning automaton, programmed with exhaustion, his socks and sweater went next, and then he was yearning for the bed. He clambered toward the first of the co-joined twins, slipped back the sheets and eased his bulky frame onto an unprotesting mattress. As his skull sought blindly for pillows, something long and thin and limp began toying with his face, the light switch on a string suspended above his headboard. Geoffrey tugged it fast and firm, and then there was darkness. Once his vision had adjusted to this merciful oblivion, he noticed that he'd forgotten to draw the curtains. A spectre of moonlight stole in through the window to his left. But this wasn't troubling for long. Within seconds of closing his eyes, Geoffrey Mansfield fell dead to the world. He was roused by the sense of a presence in his room. 
He wasn't aware of how long he had slept, nor even whether he had slept. All he could perceive in the asylum of his mind was the continuing blackness of the interior, the faint silver dusting of moonlight on the contours of the surrounding furniture. Now, from the door to the right, a figure was advancing towards him. It was a dwarfed shape and utterly unstable. As it moved, its joints groaned, or something did. Maybe the slipshod footwear that in the gloom looked disconcertingly familiar. At any rate, the tread was moist, a slow, muted sloshing of leather against carpet fabric. She, indeed the figure, was that of a woman, the sagging peaks of distended breasts pushed against the down flow of her dark shroud, was working her unconvincing way around the haphazard bed formation. It was only now that Geoffrey was able to examine her face. As he did so, his mind awoke entirely, grew alive with unfathomable dread. Was the woman wearing a mud pack? The kind of ineffective skin stuff the vain bitches were hoodwinked into buying by unscrupulous advertisers? The organisation of flesh in the face was clearly not as it should be, and was certainly darker. Geoffrey wouldn't have thought the old dear would bother at her time of life. The limpid, stinking, cumbersome mess of her indicated that his visitor was no spring chicken. Geoffrey was about to call out to her, You're in the wrong room, dear, when he remembered two things. He suddenly wished he had not. he definitely locked himself in the room tonight. He was the only guest in the pub. Now, Geoffrey stirred in his nest of sheets. The woman moved closer, around the far corner of the double bed, towards the place at which one ordinarily climbed in. Was this the landlord's wife, misguided by drink? She would certainly have a key to his room. Here she came, loose-limbed, face a sticky conglomeration of cosmetics, hair freshly washed after a hard weekend shift. Flat black locks, glossy in the moonlight, were pasted across a head that looked collapsed with decay. Surely this was only an effect of the window behind, though Geoffrey was less successful at explaining the stench. Perhaps the landlady hadn't showered too well, after all. Whether she was actually the chef or had helped out in the kitchens, the, the odour of today's fish clung to her like frightful sea limpets. The threads of his fantasy suddenly unravelling, Geoffrey recoiled in wordless horror. The woman had proceeded to climb into the marital bed with him. Not until now did Geoffrey grow conscious of his nakedness. As the dark, wet figure with the muddy face struggled beneath the sheets of the bed, he tugged up the covers until he was enshrouded, smock-like. He glanced forwards, shuddering as the shape settled beside him at a dishevelled horizontal. At once he realised what the fishy smell put him in mind of. Public toilets, the ineluctable smell of urine. In the peripheries of his vision, the woman was now rearing up, face mask despoiling the square of the window. He wouldn't look, couldn't look, but just then a hand reached out to demand his attention. There wasn't much to it, just a provisional pouch of meat and sticks that clawed ineffectually at the blankets. Then the head moved in, and a voice, choked up with sewage and chlorine, whispered into his ear, A good night kiss, please, Geoffrey. What kind of a husband is it that lets his wife sleep without one? Maybe we could, well, you know, after all, it's been quite a while. Involuntarily, Geoffrey then turned to stare into the eyes of the dead thing at his side, and sudden terror draining the last of his bladder, he flung back the covers, sprung off the bed, bolted to the door, flicked on the light, rotated and gazed at the middle of the room. There was nothing on the bed but a tousled maelstrom of sheets, but in the stark yellow light of the wall lamp the slip cover appeared soaking wet, 
A coppery smell of urine filled the room, uncaring of the infelicity betokened by his flaccid, dripping member, Geoffrey edged forwards. Mary, he pleaded, but from the silent night there was no reply, only the bed. It looked as though two people had been making sweaty, passionate love in the sheets and the attendant images, clear in his mind as fresh water, thoroughly repulsed Geoffrey. Thank you for that story, Gary. It's uh, truly a wondrous monster. Hmm? The indelible strain of company first saw printer's ink in 2007 in All Hallows 42, and it was part of the collection in P.S. Showcase Number 1, Sanity and Other Delusions from P.S. Publishing. In addition to writing, Gary also runs Greyfriar Press, whose first title was the mighty horror anthology Poe's Progeny, released in the autumn, well, when else but autumn, of 2005. Since that auspicious beginning, Greyfriar Press is slowly building into a significant force in dark literature. You may visit Gary at his blog, http colon slash slash www.gary-fry.com. I'll put that at the bottom of our homepage, TalesToTerrify.com. Gary invites you to stop by, stick round, browse a bit, then buy a book. Hmm, where have I heard that before? Buy a book. Hmm. Well, the... Indelible Strain of Company was bodied forth for us tonight by John Dodds. John is a Scot, obviously, who lives in Bulgaria, which is not readily apparent from his reading. John is a writer-narrator, the author of several novels and numerous stories, three of which have received honorable mention in the year's Best Fantasy and Horror Anthologies. And, by the way, the first two novels in John's crime series, The Kendrick Chronicles, Bone Machines, and Kali's Kiss, are out as audiobooks from Blackstone Audio. They are narrated by British actor Robin Sachs, who has appeared in numerous films and TV series, including Babylon 5, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Lost World, Jurassic Park, Galaxy Quest, and others. John Dodds may be reached at... And I will put that at the bottom of our homepage at TalesToTerrify.com also. And, yes, you know what I am about to say. That will be that for this evening. I would have you be upstanding, rewrap yourselves, bright and chipper now. It is off into the chill and windy spring night for a swift walk home. Oh, by the way... North of here, avoid Graceland Cemetery. After last week, I'm afraid they know you're coming, and a simple dart to the brighter side of the street may not be sufficient this week. Also, tonight's story may have, 
well, whet your appetite for a quick whiskey or three along the way. But take my advice. Don't. The bars hereabout are not pleasant for lonely visitors. In any event, you have no need. Your conscience is lily-white. You've nothing to drown with drink, nothing that may be hiding below the surface of your thoughts as you walk, do you? No. You'll soon be home. You'll soon be in bed in the darkness of a moonless night. And, well, if you hear the mattress squeak and smell a breath of aged fish nearby, it's... Nothing. It's just the cat. Come to snuggle and perhaps to nudge you into pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.